Hey sister, this is Misty Williams, founder of HealingRosie.com, and I'm so excited to welcome you to Rosie Radio. Tune in to find clarity, direction, and hope for your healing. New episodes drop every Tuesday. We created this show to empower you to regain control of your life and feel like yourself again. Yes, sister, it is possible. All right, you guys, super excited to have my friend Corey Mascara back with me today on Rosie Radio. Um, I interviewed him for an event I did a couple of years ago, um, Your Best Sleep Ever. We were diving into the topic of sleep. And one of the things that I got really present to while I was um, doing interviews for that event was how important it was for people to not only consider what they do in that span before bed to sleep, but our parasympathetic nervous system especially in the Western world is, um, is often so locked up. Like we get so stuck in the sympathetic side of our nervous system that we have a hard time even accessing the parasympathetic to begin to move us in the direction of being able to sleep and unwind. And for a lot of us, when we think of dealing with a lot of stress, carrying a heavy burden of stress, um, we think of, you know, I need to get more sleep. I should take better care of myself, but there's really a bigger conversation that we should be having as we dive into these kinds of topics, because, if we have a parasympathetic nervous system that is basically dormant inside of us because the sympathetic is just running over it all the time, then not only are we going to have challenges sleeping, but we're going to also create a lot of disease in our body because we are, we're constantly in a state of um, chronic stress that is, that is overwhelming everything. It's hijacking everything. And what I love about Corey's work is that he's really committed to helping all of us access this internal part that is still and quiet and, can help us to start relating differently to what we're experiencing and creating in our lives moment by moment. So we're going to dive into that more um, during this interview today. And one of the things that's been really on my mind, because I'm talking to the women in our community about it so much, is this idea of creating a life where we're getting more support. You know, for many women, we are the supporters in our lives, right? We're the supporters for everyone that we love and allowing people to give that support to us, moving out of doing, doing, doing all the time into a more receptive mode can be really challenging and hard. Um, I have my own experience with that. I know a lot of women um, will relate as we're diving into this conversation. So we're going to, we're going to crack that one open a bit and talk about some of the ways that we get stuck in our patterns um, of not having the support we need, but it's really important. If we're really committed to healing, we must be supported. We cannot build a life where we are the ones giving and contributing and doing all the things all the time, right? We also need to be nurtured and uh, we need the things that we're giving to everyone else. And it's really, really important when we need our bodies to heal too. So mm-hmm. Corey is a former monk, co-founder of mindfulness.com and best-selling author of the book, Stop Missing Your Life. He has taught mindfulness leadership at Columbia University, is an instructor of positive psychology at the University of Pennsylvania, and for the last 10 years has offered mindfulness keynotes, workshops, and retreats around the world. Named by Dr. Oz as one of the nation's leading experts in mindfulness, Corey's meditations have been heard more than 20 million times in over 100 countries. And his goal is to share wisdom teachings in a practical and accessible way. You can familiarize yourself with Corey's teachings by listening to his podcast, Practicing Human, or following him on Instagram where he posts video teachings and writings. Welcome, Corey. Thanks, Misty. Hi, everyone. Yes, yes. Well, I'm I, I mean, in my head, even as I was reading your bio, I was like, gosh, there's so many directions I would love to go with this conversation. And mm, we're not yeah. going to be on here for three hours. So. Yeah. <laughs> so definitely check out his podcast, y'all, because... Um, I'm sure there's there's going to be lots that you can learn from Corey that we're not going to be able to cover on this call. But let's just kind of start with this idea of support. I was telling you before we started recording a little bit about my own experiences with this topic. And I know a lot of women in our communities um, have struggled with support. And I was really confronted with the way I was living my life that really didn't include making sure I had support at all. When I was 35 and had to have my first surgery, they found an ovarian cyst on my left ovary. And 
Um, I had to have it surgically removed. It was supposed to be a 25 minute surgery that was outpatient. They were going to send me home after, and it ended up being a two and a half hour surgery because they found endometriosis once they opened me up and had to remove all that scar tissue from my abdomen. And so they still sent me home after and stitched up part of my small intestines unbeknownst to me or them. And for the next six days, I couldn't keep down food or water. It was terrifying. And I remember when I went, finally was admitted to the hospital on Tuesday, the following Tuesday. So this happened on a Thursday. I remember the, um, the doctor telling me that I was going to have to go back for surgery again. And my heart like dropping, like no more surgeries. Right. Mm. And this time they were going to admit me. And I actually begged the doctor, please don't send me home after this. Like, let's make sure things are okay. And I remember after the surgery, sitting in the hospital room, feeling like I needed a friend, Mm. but I hadn't told any of my friends about the first surgery. My mom knew and my roommate knew, and that was it. And I remember feeling shame, like shame that I didn't tell anyone. And also shame that I wasn't strong enough to confront this situation alone. There was a lot there that came up for me during that time that I didn't even know was like simmering below the surface. Mm. And when I talk to women in our community, it's the same for a lot of them. You know, they are conditioned to be the ones that you're the mom, you're the wife, you take care of the home, you're taking care of your aging parents, right? You're taking care of siblings that need help and support. You're involved at school, taking care of homeroom. You're, you know, you've got a career, a high powered career, and you're very committed to your work. We give and give and give and give. Mm. And we're not taught to be receivers. I was a little girl at four and five and six years old. Mom's helper. I was mom's helper. And I loved it. I loved that role for my mother. But it taught me from a young age that I couldn't need help. I needed to be the one that gave the help. So this is a very common experience for women. And part of all of us breaking ourselves open and confronting this part of ourselves is not just recognizing the reality that this is what we're creating. And I had no conscious awareness around creating this life for myself, right? But I, that's what I was doing. And when I started seeing that I'm doing this, because it was so foreign to me, I didn't have a clue what I should be doing differently to start creating differently. It really took me years to figure it out. And the shifts I've made, I mean, they almost seem like these little two millimeter shifts in my way of being, but they have put me on a very, very different path in my life. And, you know, today I have a wonderful partner. I dated a ton when I was younger, the first, you know, 20 years of my adult life and had a couple of boyfriends in there, but no one that was really a partner, you know, and I, I see that my way of being didn't create space for someone to be that contribution to me. So that has massively shifted. And the way I, the way I manage my teams, the way I show up as an entrepreneur is so different because I have a ton of support now, right? I, I set things up with the expectation of being supported. I actually consider before I take on a responsibility, if I'm going to have the support I need to be able to sustain this commitment. And that dichotomy was not even something that ever crossed my mind, right? When I was mm-hmm. younger. So when I talk to the women in our community and especially in Healing Rosie University, almost all of them are caregivers, mm-hmm. aging parents, um, children with special needs, right? And I see that the the conditioning to give is the thing that for a lot of us has us creating these lives where we're dealing with chronic symptoms and even diseases that we don't know how to break out of. And of course, conventional medicine tells us we don't, we don't know what causes anything and we'll watch this until it's really bad. And we can start prescribing things for you. Right. What we really need as women, as we, we need a different framework, a different way of relating to these kinds of topics and issues. And we need to dig in a little bit and start examining how we're living our lives. And we, we need practices that get us present to 
ourselves and our needs where we can actually get quiet for a minute, you know, instead of being caught in that rat, rat race of doing. So I've offered a, a pretty big frame here for where we could go with this conversation, but I would love for you just to kind of chime in here, because I know this is something that you've committed your life to supporting people in this way with these kinds of things. And you have so many tools and perspectives that we could benefit from today. Yeah. Thanks, Misty. And thanks for sharing. I think people just hearing your story coming from a very embodied and vulnerable place uh, allows, it, it opens a door for each person to check in with where has this been true in my own life, Yeah, which has to be the foundation for any sort of transformative inner work, the, the willingness to even go there. And so there's a, what's called like a vicarious self-efficacy that gets developed and watching you do it. It's like, oh, maybe this is something I can touch into myself. As you were sharing, there were three things that stood out to me. Um, the first thing was this wanting something and not wanting it at the same time. So sitting in the waiting room and desperately craving having a friend there and support. And yet there's another part of you that pushed that away to get to the point where there wasn't actually anyone there and didn't tell anyone. The second thing was um, the shame that was arising in that moment as you started to really let yourself connect to that pattern. So I want to talk about that. And then the third thing was the tenderness that arise as you were speaking about it. Um, and anytime that there's a tenderness like that, it's usually when we're connecting to a pattern that is related to a younger part of ourselves and some sort of need that desperately wants to be met, but is not met either by ourselves or others. So let's just, let's start with that first one of wanting something and um, also at the same time, not wanting it. In the context of uh, something like asking for support, I think you did a, there's a tremendous amount of self-awareness that you've developed around this pattern for yourself. And I think a lot of people can see themselves in this, um, maybe being in a caregiver role when they were younger, maybe associating strength with not having needs or just developing a lifestyle where it felt like the only way to get through it and to survive was taking care of everything around us. And anytime where we take care of ourselves, it either feels like too much or there's just no time to do it. And so there's an infinite number of reasons why something like that could get developed, but Let's look at it in the context of what you shared here at an earlier age. We all, from a developmental perspective, we all have core needs um, when we come into the world as infants and even into, you know, later into childhood, um, especially needs of um, like attunement and connection, love. And so when a certain need isn't met, by someone else, the system doesn't have the ability to go like in the system being like ourselves, six year old self, five year old self doesn't have the capacity to go. All right, well, I'm not getting this from mom or dad or caregiver, but that's OK, because they're doing a lot right now. I deserve this connection. I'll be able to get this in some other place and maybe I could even give it to myself and develop a meditation practice or something at five or six. You just know that there's something that wants to be had and there's no way to get it. And so the mechanism around that is to actually create a new identity that feels empowered in the context of not getting that thing. And there's two developmental psychologists, um, uh, Eileen Lapierre, uh, and I forget the other author, but they wrote the book Healing Developmental Trauma. And what they call this is creating uh, pride-based counter-identifications. So the shame-based identification in that moment is I, I want connection, but I'm not getting it. So I'm not worthy of connection or I'm not worthy of being supported. 
that's really hard to confront when we're young. And so what we do subconsciously is we go, well, I don't need to be supported. I'm strong. I can do this alone. And I'm going to be the person that takes care of everyone else. And so it becomes this like ego identity that we generate from a very early age to not have to touch the deeper pain of getting the thing that we want. And this is why we can go an entire lifetime then over the next decades, really being that person that's a shoulder for everyone to cry on. We show up for everyone. We're applauded as being the person that's always there. And the reason that's so tricky is because nobody's going to really condemn you for being that person. It's not like, let's say, um, getting caught up in drinking or drugs, which like culturally people are going to go, oh, there's something wrong here. If you're showing up for people, if you're being the shoulder for people, if you're like, I can do this alone, it's like, wow, this person's strong. So these patterns become really tricky when they're not culturally looked at as issues. And so we just keep sustaining it. But it puts us in a place where we're doing all of this stuff. We're getting a certain praise for it. It's fulfilling some need, but it's not fulfilling a need on the deepest level. And what I would say is like, your awakening moment in the waiting room was the realization of like, I've been doing this for so long. It's gotten me so far and there's an incompleteness to it. And so the first, the first step of that is having an honest conversation with yourself. And that's where the tenderness arises. You go from being the strong person that has it all together, that doesn't need anything, which is, it's a, it's a barrier. It's a wall to the deeper pain mm-hmm. to who, wow, this hurts. Like, what's going on here? How did I get in a place like this? There's something that I need that I'm not getting in this moment. And then that's where the shame can come in. Like, wait, why do I need this in the first place? Right. That's the younger self that didn't get the connection that said the only way to get through is not need connection. And so it puts shame on it in order to, you know, survive. And I'm really going into the details of this because this is this will come up for every single person around some sort of childhood need or younger need that didn't get developed. And it's always going to be caked with some form of shame or judgment and the feeling in the moment that is really the heart of the thing that prevents us from reaching out is the pain we associate with trying to get the thing that we want. And chances are, since, you know, this isn't a therapy session, we won't go fully into it with you, but chances are when you've contemplated the idea of like asking a friend to be there in the waiting room with you when you're done or reaching out to family and like really sharing what's going on, there was probably some uncomfortable feeling associated with doing that. Yeah. Whether you, and is that fair to say? Yeah. I actually remember witnessing this in my grandmother, Hmm. witnessing in my, in my mom too, they, they would hardly ever ask. And in private moments would say, I don't ask because I couldn't bear it if you said no, yeah. right? Look, this It's so vulnerable to ask. And I was imprinted with that. I can really see that that was, that was something that I also deeply felt. And, you know, when you start looking at other modalities, like look at the five love languages, my number one love language is acts of service. And it's kind of like fitting, right? Yeah. That that's what it would be for me. It's also the same for my mother. Um, I would guess it's the same for my grandmother, though I wasn't into it at a time when she was alive and we could talk about it. You know, that would have been fun. But yeah, for sure. I mean, asking for help was a very vulnerable thing. I feel like now I'm so much better at it, but I, every now and then I hit my own edge with it too. Mm -hmm. You know, I imagine this will be a lifetime of unraveling, but the fear back then was that I would ask for it and they would say no, right? Uh, I'm going to ask someone and they're going to be too busy. And then there was also a little bit of the shame of, I didn't tell any of my friends. Now, 10 years later, Misty looks back and is like, my friends would have dropped everything if I would have told them, right? right. But, you know, in the moment we have these stories and until we start getting conscious to what's happening, you know, these patterns just play out in our lives and we don't even realize 
it's happening. So back then it was just like the need. I actually called a friend that I barely knew to pick me up from the hospital. So mm. weird, right? Like this person, I barely, hey, I'm in the hospital. Can you, I'm sure from her perspective, she's like, yes, I'll be there. I wonder why I'm getting this call, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, because we weren't, but it felt less vulnerable to me to ask someone that I didn't really know. Yeah. Yeah. Well put. And yeah. the higher, the more intimate the relationship, the higher the stakes yeah. if they were to say no, Yeah, because this is someone who's closer to your heart, someone who's mm-hmm. closer to that place of actually being able to fulfill the connection and therefore someone closer to, and with more power to take it away. Yeah. So I'm curious then, what was your process of the transition to where you are now? What were the steps you took that actually helped you start to shift this pattern and feel more comfortable reaching out to friends? I don't think I started actually shifting this for maybe two years or three years. Um, I started seeing it Mm. more for sure, but I just, I didn't know what to do with it. So it was something that I sat with for a while. And eventually I started um, finding these communities where there was a lot of talk, talk of vulnerability and how to be more vulnerable, just moving into these more transformational type spaces. And as the language would come up in the communities, I would see myself in it and start feeling like, oh, there's someone to go. The big, big um, kind of defining moment for me was listening to Alison Armstrong. I don't know if you're familiar with her work, mm. but she has um, a bunch of audio stuff on Audible right now um, where the people can download pretty inexpensively. Her programs used to be pretty, her audio programs used to be pretty expensive, but she's made those accessible. And I listened to one called Celebrate Partnership. And in this program, they were talking, she was talking about um, provider protector energy and supporter enhancer energy. Some people call that male, female. She's, she really tries not to use that language because we all have both in us. Right. So she talked about how much easier it is for a lot of men to embody provider protector energy and expect support because of the energy they're embodying. And I remember being like slayed when I heard this, Mm. like, cause I, I have noticed that they expect support easier, but I didn't connect it to, well, they're taking this responsibility because I didn't do that. Right. Mm -hmm. So I started looking at how this energetically was playing out in my life and examining all of my relationships. So I examined my relationships um, with my team um, where I was actually feeling like I'm the one that's always accountable for everything. And I wasn't getting accountability from the team like I needed. And it was very stressful. I was going through these cycles of burnout because of it. And then definitely in, in patterns with my family, things that I would take on that I'm not going to get the support I need. Right. You know, so I'm just like having to kind of power through it. And I also started realizing that vulnerability is tough for me. Like the way that I was able to kind of open up and share what happened to me at the beginning of this podcast, that was not accessible to me a decade ago, right? Mm. I couldn't have gone to that place and spoken about something so vulnerable and tender with some degree of like holding myself together. Mm. So, um, so anyway, I just, the convergence of these worlds, I think, and really her work of helping me to see it, like the way she communicated the difference. And then I was able to start examining where am I being accountable, which was everywhere, Mm. but do I have this support to successfully be accountable in a way that's not burning me out? And that's, that was super confronting. And in fact, a couple of years later, after kind of starting to play, maybe it wasn't even two years, it was probably like a year later, I actually went through this big implosion on my team because I was trying to realign things energetically where I could expect more from them. But that's not, that's not the deal I negotiated when I hired these people. Right. And there was a lot of resistance to some of them moving into this place and it just wasn't sustainable. So I went through this mass incineration in my in my life. I had a couple clients poached and mm. um, lost a lot of team members. And there was a lot of toxic stuff and it all burned up. And it was, you know, scary. And I mean, the universe kind of has the way of like, we're going to help you get this lesson. Yeah. <laughs> fully, yes. fully get the lesson. Um, but it it really, it what it did is it put me into a place of deep surrender. Mm. I I did not really know surrender before that experience, you know, and 
Um, I moved into a place of really deep surrender where I started letting things come to me more. And I start, I, I quit trying to control and be the solution for everything. And my life was able to start flowering in a completely different kind of way with a lot less effort. And um, I started just making smarter decisions about what I took on and asking for what I needed. Right. So mm-hmm. it, it's not something that happened for me quick. I wish like it would have probably made some things a lot easier, but you know, it's a lifetime of, of being a certain way that it, it took a while for me to really crack that open enough that I could create the shifts that ultimately I've created in my life. And I still do these check-ins with myself all the time. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And everyone's journey and timeline is going to be different. I I think the beauty of this kind of work is that like, there's almost like nothing more worth our time than this kind of work because the dividends that it pays in terms of our own well-being and the well-being of everyone that we care about is just like proportionate to how deep we go into it. So whether the timeline's a month or 10 years or 30 years, it's like anything you're doing to chip away at that or understand it more deeply is time really well spent. Um, Two things I also took from what you just shared here. One was the role of um, other communities that were talking about this. And Mm -hmm. I think that can be something that could easily be glossed over. But when it comes to these patterns that we have shame around, it makes me think of the Brene Brown quote. uh, If you put uh, shame into a Petri dish and you add silence, it grows. But if you give it voice, it wilts. And so shame is inherently a social not a social construct, but the seeds of it are embedded in our relationality. The reason we feel shame is it's some way to make ourselves wrong so that we don't do something that would get us kicked out of the tribe. Oh, I said a bad thing. I'm a bad person. And the like self berating or the self judging causes us to make sure we never do something like that again, so that we continue to preserve the connection with other people. And it's why so many of us live our lives in shame and don't talk about it because what shame is trying to tell us inherently is not to tell anybody about this because you're bad. And if you, if you tell people, they're going to know, they're going to find out and you're going to lose connection. The irony of that is that it's actually like the opposite. And when you can actually talk about what's alive for you in an embodied and truthful way, people see themselves in your experience and it actually brings you closer. And one of the ways that you fast track that is by finding communities as you were doing that talk about this more. Now, some people might be listening going like, where do I find those communities or what does that look like? You're kind of doing it right now just by listening to this podcast. You hear people, um, Misty specifically, talking about her own experience. And just in hearing that and you hearing your own story in that allows you to start to feel like, oh, I'm not alone in this. I'm not wrong because of this. And that makes space for this to be more safe to bring out and to share with others or to share with your partner or your friends. And so you could just start there if you don't have, let's say, a community of of people um, that you could go to. And that is really important alchemizing work. It, It shifts that shame that keeps us in silence and isolation to something that's actually a form of empowerment and becomes a gateway into all these other ways that we connect with others. The next thing, though, that is then required is this embodiment piece. Now, you you talked about men typically having more of an ability to embody that provider quality. Now, men have their own complications around conditioning when it comes to asking for help and feeling like they have to bear the burden themselves. Um, So I don't want to, for any men listening, say like, you know, that this is totally easy for us. I know it's difficult Um, and it's not always gendered as clearly as this. But I can resonate with that part of me that like really feels good in the provider role and also kind of an expectation of that, that support as well. And so 
for someone that is now looking to embody a different kind of energy, this is where you can actually do practices in isolation to work with that uncomfortable feeling that comes up when you think about asking for help. And this is where something like meditation or visualization can come in. If you see that this is a growth edge for you, what I would first invite someone to do or anyone listening to do is bring to mind what that growth edge is. Say it's going into the hospital, you want to reach out for some help. First, just imagine yourself doing that. What does it feel like to imagine texting a friend, someone that you know, someone that you're connected to and saying something like, hey, I'm going through something difficult right now. I'm feeling a bit scared and I'm really looking for some support. Is this something that you might be able to help me with? And just see what that feels like in your body. And chances are, if this is like a, uh, a growth edge for you, it's going to feel uncomfortable. And that's where we typically reach that point and then quickly withdraw because it's too uncomfortable. So now what we're doing with presence, mindfulness, and awareness while simultaneously grounding our system is we're letting the waves of, of that move through us so that we have an opportunity to respond intentionally rather than just react subconsciously. The more you allow yourself to cycle through that, the less the discomfort of that actually um, takes hold. And then what I would do is imagine yourself five years from now or a year from now being someone who embodies the capacity to reach out to others freely and um, almost expecting that, of course, they're going to be here. Like you said right now, it's like you think of any friend that you have and you know, like, of course, they'll drop everything to show up for you. So maybe you're not in that state right now, but imagine what it would be like to be in that state or imagine a friend that you know who is like that. And they just, you know, everyone is there for them whenever they want. This is totally easy for them. And go, what, what would that feel like to be able to do that? What's the, what's the energy of that? You could even say like, because everything has like a certain vibrational quality to it and we don't have to get woo with it. Uh, it's more like an emotion of joy has a vibration in the body. Emotion of sadness has a vibration. Emotion of shame is going to have a vibration. We're going to feel it in some way. So what's that energy or that frequency of being able to receive and be open and allow others in? whether you see it in someone else or your future self. And then spend time in your meditation, just sitting, being still with your eyes closed, feeling what that's like in your body, allowing your nervous system to reorganize around it and get more familiar with it. The nervous system doesn't seek out what it wants. It seeks out what's familiar. And so this requires a reconditioning and a refamiliarizing with a different embodied quality. So those are the two things, like, well, three very practical things. One, start moving into circles or bringing into friends what's actually coming up for you. So the vulnerability of that. Two, imagine yourself in these scenarios that are typically uncomfortable and get familiar with what comes up in, in you in that space and just practice breathing into it and then like spreading it out throughout the body. And then the third thing, embody the new energy that you want to step into. Even if you don't have it yet, imagine your future self having it or someone you know who has it and allow yourself just to spend five minutes dwelling in that, feeling that and breathing that in throughout your entire mind and body until it starts to become more comfortable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm thinking about just the power of a practice like meditation, having the 10 minutes in the morning to, you know, visualize or to do some of this kind of work. When we're not used to creating that kind of space, it can feel maybe odd or confronting or like we're wasting our time. But mm. I personally have gotten a a lot of centering and settling and perspective, just taking the time like you're describing to visualize to see the future that 
you want to embody and breathing through the discomfort, you know, instead of locking up. I, I observed that pattern in me a lot, actually, of I, that tightness would come in the chest and like my whole body would clench, right? Yeah. Um, and so much of shifting is really a somatic process. It's happening inside of our bodies. And when we are trying to reconcile things in our minds, think our way through, you know, resolving these issues, we can, we can stay stuck a whole lot longer. So these are really great recommendations. Even just a practice of stillness, right? So I offer more of like a, um, a visualization type practice here, but let's just say you want to do basic mindfulness meditation where you take five or 10 minutes in the morning, either sit down or lie down, place one hand on your belly and just bring your attention to the body breathing. And you make that your, your singular focus point. And then when the mind wanders, you gently bring it back to the breath. It's like meditation 101. What you're doing is you are training and expanding your capacity to be with the waves of your life as they are arising and passing, whether they're different thoughts, difficult emotions, an itch that you immediately want to scratch, all of these little forms of discomfort that we typically retreat from, you're training yourself to actually be with them and to flow with them and to not be as scared by them. You're also training your ability to find a sense of groundedness and relaxation, stability and ease. And that might sound like just, it's like, oh, that's my break period where I restore. And then like, I go back into my life. It's not like you are actually developing the qualities that are going to equip you for the most consequential moments of your life. If you think about any sort of moment where you have to make a decision um, that's leading to certain patterns, the pattern is not like this singular static thing. It's happening in a series of moments of decisions from I got the call, I'm going to need to go into the hospital. What happens next? It's like my mind goes into oh solo mode. Like I got to figure this out, take care of it. So there was a stimulus and there was a response. Stimulus being the phone call, the response being this is how I work with it. Most of the time that's happening subconsciously. With a practice of stillness, you are training yourself to actually watch the moment to moment flow of this internal experience to be grounded in it so that you can see those moments of, oh, there's a stimulus and here's my normal pattern. I'm, I'm going to try and do this myself. I take a breath and then you can go, what's a different way of doing this? What, what am I actually feeling right now? And what do I actually need? That little space is what allows you to start to make these changes in an intentional way. And they're small, which is why they're often overlooked, but they're not trivial. They are the foundation for any sort of behavior change that you want to make. It's also the foundation for reparenting that inner, inner child. And so the, one of the first things I talked about when you were sharing your story is that we all have some part of us that learned how they needed to be in the world in order to be safe, loved, or to get praise. And we're carrying that around with us, whether we want to or not. And so if we didn't get the kind of parenting for that child that we needed at a certain age, the real next journey into adulthood and into growth is becoming that source of groundedness for ourselves. A meditation practice does that inherently, but what you can do at the end of a meditation practice or just taking five minutes to be still with yourself is you, you touch into that part of you that maybe is living in fear or is caught in a particular pattern. And you imagine, give, give that part of you form that you can visualize. Like what would be the, the visual representation of this? Is it actually a younger version of myself? Is it a character from a movie? You know, if I'm feeling shame, what does that look like? For me, sometimes it comes up as um, Gollum from Lord of the Rings, just like really withdrawn and scared. And so I'll imagine that and I'll imagine it sitting in front of me um, in a chair. And sometimes you could do this with an actual chair that you set up or you just do it by closing your eyes and imagining it there. This now allows you to have a conversation with the part of yourself that's usually operating subconsciously in the background. And what I would say is then 
have a conversation where you are getting to know that part of you and you are beginning to show it that um, you're here for it. Just like, you know, let's say it's just younger Corey and where I'm giving it the name Corey. I would say, you know, Corey, you have been working so hard to keep everything together, to get what we need, to make sure we're liked, to make sure we're safe, to make sure we're getting the connection we want. And I can just tell how exhausting this is for you. And I'm so happy and proud of you for doing all of this work over these years. And I want you to know that it's okay to take a break right now. We have different resources than we had when we were five or six. You don't need to be on top of everything in every moment. And I'm going to be here with you, walking side by side with you through all of the difficult challenges we have. And you can allow me to take on the burden of navigating these rather than always feeling like you need to be in control. What you say is going to take different language based on what you feel like that part of you needs to hear. But the point is, instead of creating more shame around that part or chastising it or getting angry at it, which we typically do, what's wrong with me? Why can't I get this right? Why do I keep falling in this pattern? That part needs to know that you see it, that you appreciate it, that you know what it's trying to serve and that you have different resources other than it to try to get the outcomes that you're looking for. And that's where the adult self has to start talking to the younger self. And if they don't have a relationship, the younger self is always going to be operating in the background and will always get caught in cycles of self-sabotage because the adult self will say, I want this. I want this. I'm creating. I'm imagining. I'm excited for this life. And then we get closer to it. And younger self says, last time we had something good, the the second shoe dropped and everything went to crap and no way we're letting that happen again. And so we Mm self-destruct. And um and so that process of inner like reparenting, I think, is is core for all of us, whether you want to put that language on it or not. We really have to develop a relationship with that that younger self. And a practice of stillness does that. But bringing in that visual element as well, I have found to be incredibly useful because then in a the moment you can talk to that younger self. It's like, oh, Corey, like I see you and it might be, you know, I'd call it CJ, which is all my what my family called me growing up, Corey Jr. Um CJ, like, oh, I I see that you're coming out here right now. It's okay. Like, we got this. And just like you putting a metaphorical hand on their shoulder goes such a long way for that fear part to to soften and feel reconnected to the the larger whole of who you are. What's coming up for me as I'm hearing you talk about this is obviously this has happened for me in my journey where I've had to recognize that I'm, I'm playing this pattern. And little Misty very often believed that she had to do whatever the thing was, right? There's this, there wasn't even a, a really questioning of it. It started so young for me. I had three and eventually four younger siblings and my mom was working full time and my dad was very patriarchal, you know, men, housework is women's work. And, you know, he just, he worked and came home and watched TV and really my mom was taking care of everything and, and I was helping her. Mm-hmm. So as I started reckoning with all of this in my own life, this idea of permission started appearing for me and I started realizing, and I'm sure this is language that I'm, I picked up along the way, right? I started realizing that I didn't believe I had permission. Then it was, I need to give myself permission. Mm. Like this idea of permission presumes that something outside of you is what is going to permit you to have whatever it is you need in the moment. And the truth is that the person that needs to give us permission really is ourselves, mm. right? Like I, I need to give myself permission and actually being able to kind of break that apart and see it as, oh, I, I can like empowering myself with the permission to give myself permission, right. Was actually really 
profound for me because I think the, you know, when you're younger, you really are looking for something outside of you to give you permission for everything. I mean, it's kind of the nature of being a very dependent child, but as an adult, the person that ultimately needs to give you permission is yourself, right? I remember along these same lines, being in a relationship after the big burnout experience, you know, when I was getting present to a lot more things. And I wish I could remember the details of what I was sharing with this guy I was dating because it would probably make the story more interesting. But I remember sharing, you know, something that was deeply personal and vulnerable for me. And I was sharing it, knowing that what I was sharing was actually contradicting with what he might need in the moment, you know? So I had kind of wrestled with, well, do I, do I, do I state my perspective? Do I kind of let his overshadow, which was actually my previous pattern? You know, I just would kind of, oh, they can't meet my need. And the wall would go up. And I remember sharing it and getting this, getting this aha of like, I actually don't even need you to do anything with this. I, Mm. I need to see me, you know, I, I need to acknowledge that this is my experience, you know, like I was constantly looking out like someone see what I'm experiencing over here, right? Mm -hmm. And until they saw, I didn't feel permission to kind of fully embody my own experience. But there was like a shift for me of like, I I actually, I I need to see me. Mm -hmm. I'm the one that needs to see and acknowledge. And there's something really liberating and freeing about reclaiming this, these parts of yourselves and these needs that you have, you know, and putting it out there for someone else to figure out and fill and realizing that there's things I can do for my, for myself. And there's, there's permission that I can give myself and me being seen in this moment doesn't depend on the other person seeing me as much as it depends on me seeing me and me putting myself out there. And, and I even see in how I navigate my relationship with Roderick, where he's having an experience where he wants a situation to go whatever his way is. And I try to be really conscious of let's put, let's put both of our experiences on the table. Right. Mm -hmm. I recognize that you're having a different experience, right? I need, I'm trying my best to see it and I need you to see what my experience is. But more importantly, I need to know that I'm putting my experience on the table too. I mean, these are things that have taken years (laughs) Mm, to learn how to do, but they're really important practices. I found in my journey that nothing was more powerful than actually doing it. You know, I could think about it and, and even the visualizations, which, which are very powerful. They probably set the stage for me to be able to do it, right? Mm-hmm. There, But the actual, the vulnerability and putting myself out there, the same person, I don't remember how that conversation went, but I remember not too much longer later, he said, you know, you're like, you're like velvet with a steel bar inside, you know, like soft and tender, but there's so much strength. I was occurring for him as being so strong and being able to be so vulnerable. And these were all at the time, especially very new parts of myself that I was exploring, you know, um, but the, the giving myself permission and seeing myself and acknowledging and making sure that my perspective was always on the table mm. that I was like, a, it still is a spiritual practice, but back then it was really a spiritual practice for me. Amazing. Yeah. Well, why don't you talk to us a little bit as we're wrapping things up here about how you got into this work. Every time I talk to you, I feel like we go into these really sacred <laughs> holy places, you know, and I would love for everyone just to learn a little bit more about your background and how you get into this work and what is the work that you're doing today? Yeah. Um, yeah, my journey into this work didn't start for any noble reasons. Uh, I started meditating cause I was trying to impress a girl. I had a college girlfriend who was in a meditation and I wanted her to think I was cool. So I started meditating and then she broke up with me a couple weeks after that. And it was the pain of that, that actually caused me to start taking this more seriously. And, um, simultaneously, I just started asking big questions about what I wanted to do with my life. I thought I was going to go into finance and, um, was just becoming disillusioned with that being like a path 
or at least a guaranteed path toward fulfillment. And so everything in this line of inquiry, just like, what do I want to do? Everything kept being reduced to something that could be perceived as quite trite, um, but I want to be happy. And it was just a profound realization at the time that like everything that I'm doing is in service of that. And so if that's the end point and I'm kind of taking gambles, trying to do certain things to get there, I should probably first understand what that actually means and what happiness and fulfillment actually are and then reverse engineer from there. And so that caused me to pivot my direction. And um, a year later, I was in a monastery uh, doing very deep dive into um, Vipassana meditation, also known as mindfulness meditation, and came back and was like, okay, this really transformed a lot, but it didn't give me all of the answers. And so over the last 10 years, I've just been basically living my life as intimately as possible and asking what's needed, what, what do I, what am I knowing and what do I still not know? And then trying to fit together the puzzle of just what it, what fulfillment looks like in my own way and then sharing about it. And that's taken me into trauma work, positive psychology, hypnosis, P, um, every mindfulness training under the sun and all just like in service of what does it mean to live well? And so these days I, I still always have a hard time describing what it is I actually do. Uh, but it's basically teachings on life. And I try to take teachings that, you know, you might hear from like a, a guru um, and make those much more practical and accessible. And then teachings that you might hear from a life coach, but add some more depth to them. And uh, I teach on social media a lot. A lot of people find me through social media on Instagram or TikTok. Um, but I have a daily podcast called Practicing Human, which is different. There's over close to 600 episodes now on just every topic that you could imagine. Um, and yeah, all my meditations can be found at mindfulness.com. So there's, if people want to interact with, with my work, there's lots of places to do so. Uh, and one of my more popular offerings is um, my free text message community that people get a free text message on mindfulness, mental health, mindset. And so if anyone wants to join there, you just text, text the word MISTY to uh, 1-631-305-2874. Um, and it's free and you'll start getting messages the next day. That's awesome. Well, I love the space that you hold Thanks, so much. Mr. It's really, it's really a pleasure to have a conversation with someone where we could go somewhere deep and true and real and talk about things that I know are really relevant to what we're experiencing in our lives every day, you know, and peel the layers on that and unpack that. I find that to be the juiciest conversations I get to have, you know, in the yeah. space that I hold for all the women in our Healing Rosie community. So thank you for sharing and swimming with me in these waters today. I hope everyone listening uh, was able to take away something that makes you think maybe opens up a part of you that you haven't visited with in a while. And um, I hope all of you really consider what do you need to be supported and really deeply believe in your heart that you're worthy of having the support that you need. So thank you so yeah. much, Corey. Thanks, Misty. All right. We'll see you guys soon. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you for listening. I hope you're feeling more empowered to overcome your flabby, foggy, and fatigued and to reclaim your life. If you haven't subscribed yet, don't forget to hit that subscribe button right now so you don't miss any of our episodes. We have some awesome shows coming right up. I love reading your reviews and comments too. They inspire me and encourage other Rosies to hang out with us and learn all these amazing strategies for healing and living our best lives. Till next time, sister. Bye.